there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Giorgio Moroder's work with Donna Summer, Blondie, and more perfectly represents the disco era. But at the time, it was the sound of the future. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Electronic dance pioneer Giorgio Moroder takes us through his decades-long career. And we review a new joint effort from Amy Mann and Ted Leo. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and uh, later on in the show, we're going to be talking to Giorgio Moroder. Now, Jim, I first encountered this name in the late 70s as a kid. I was a punk rock fan. Disco was kind of off in the corner. If you had told me then that we'd be talking about Giorgio Moroder in loving terms in 2014, I probably would have laughed at you. But you know what? The joke's on me. The guy's obviously proven his longevity. And this is a career reassessment that is very much deserved. We're going to hear from Giorgio Moroder in a little bit. But first, some music news. I ain't trying to be no D-boy. I love music. I'm a B-boy. Are you the undercover or the decoy? I'm heavy with the D. Trouble T-boy. A pit with no muzzle. About to bust your bubble like a keloid. Too much man one. Got me Pinot. I'm killing instrumentals with that all so simple. Can it be boy? That is Keep Watch, a new song from the forthcoming Wu-Tang Clan album, A Better Tomorrow. But there's another Wu-Tang Clan album coming out as well this year, Jim. It's called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. That is where the real news is. They're only going to make one copy of Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. <laughs> the idea is that they're going to take it on a tour of art galleries. They're going to charge 30 to 50 bucks for people to come in and hear the thing. You know, there's going to be no recording allowed. It's going to be very secretive. Then they're going to auction it off. Apparently, according to RZA, the producer of the Wu-Tang Clan, they've already received one offer of $5 million for Man. this record. Uh, the idea is to create a rare good, something that is on par with a, a painting or a sculpture, a piece of art. And the idea being that they feel that music has become devalued in the last decade with all this digital file sharing. They're saying, let's, let's have a discussion about the worth of music. In a statement, they said, we hope to steer those debates toward more radical solutions and provoke questions about the value and perception of music as a work of art in today's world. It's a pretty pricey way to do it. They're going to have a lot of people talking about it. A lot of people talking about a record that uh, most people may never hear. Well, and, and looking at this thing, it comes packaged in a silver and nickel box that's all fancily uh, engraved. It reminds me of that sinister cube in the Hellraiser <laughs> movies. Yeah, it's your national underground, underground when I stop the ground. Like a million elephants, a silverback, a rank, a tank, you can't stop a train. Who wants up, don't come unprepared, I'll leave there. But when I leave there, better be a household name. Brother man telling us it ain't gonna rain. So now we sit in a drop top soaking wet. In the silk suit, try not to sweat. Hit some assaults without the neck. But this be the year that we won't forget. One nine, nine, nine. Greg, 
Greg, that's a little bit of outcast. I think they're the biggest news in this year's Coachella lineup. They will be reuniting to play in the Southern California desert on those two subsequent weekends in mid-April, big Coachella festival. Interesting story is that several celebrities are being paid big bucks just to go to the festival, to go to a party at the festival, or to wear somebody's clothes at the festival. Leah Michelle of Glee apparently is collecting 20 grand from Lacoste just to wear its clothes while she walks around the desert. And a high school musical star, Vanessa Hudgens, is collecting $15,000 from McDonald's to go to one of their parties there. Uh, on the other hand, there's a, a list of celebrities that have not yet made any money, although they've made it clear they want some. Breaking Bad actor Aaron Paul, bad things happen to Jesse. He wants $15,000 and two VIP passes, but he apparently hasn't collected them yet. Where Joe Jonas of the Jonas Brothers wants $20,000 just to go to the concert. I think we should start a Kickstarter and raise some money to send Joe Jonas to the desert. Spring was never waiting for a steal. It ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance. The garden's part is melting in the dark on the sweet green icing. That's the 1978 song, MacArthur Park. It was Donna Summer's first number one hit and one of many successful collaborations with our guest this week, Giorgio Moroder. He's a performer, engineer, producer, and the creative genius behind many of the sounds we now identify as disco. But I don't want you to totally define his work just by that term. This was avant-garde production, and it was so ahead of its time that no less than Brian Eno, ding, there we go, could identify it as the future. Giorgio has also composed memorable scores for movies like Scarface and Midnight Express and written hit songs like Flashdance, What a Feeling, Call Me, and Take My Breath Away. Greg, Giorgio's recently had a renaissance of sorts, collaborating with Daft Punk on their Grammy-winning album Random Access Memories. And at 73, he's still appearing at festivals including Ultra Music, Pitchfork, and Moogfest. So, a a lot to talk about, Greg. Let's welcome Giorgio Moroder to the show. Giorgio, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. So, Giorgio, let's, uh, let's talk about the beginnings. Everybody associates you with dance music and, and use of electronic instruments, but your first instrument was not a synthesized instrument, right? You picked up a guitar, is that right, when you were a, a boy in the 50s? Yeah, I started uh, to play uh, guitar, a little bass, and I played in, in some for, for a few years in, in Italy in some tourist resorts, like in summertime. And then, at, uh, I think I was 18, 19, I became, so to say, a professional musician. I played more the bass now, and uh, I 
toured Europe, uh, every country in Europe, Switzerland, Germany. And that was great because I, during that time, I was able to uh, learn a bit the recording technology, you know, by using two recorders and uh, doing what uh, Les Paul did, uh, overdubbing voices. So at, uh, at the end, I was, I was a relatively good engineer and bass player. And then I decided to uh, become a composer. That's what I always wanted to do. I quit the job as a musician, and I settled first in Berlin. So, Giorgio, what year was this exactly that you landed in Berlin? About 67, I think. Okay, well, you know, and the wall is dividing this city. What was it like to be a young Italian musician living in this divided Berlin at that point? The life there was not good because uh, with the wall, you couldn't leave the town but uh, I was lucky. I started with a big hit, uh, a local big hit, with a singer called Ricky Shane. And then slowly, slowly, I was really, I was really getting tired of Berlin, and uh, I got an offer to become a producer, a house producer for the then called uh, Ariola, which now is uh, BMG. Mm-hmm. And so I moved to Munich, which was much better because it was much closer to Italy. And there was beginning to be an awakening by 68, 69, 70 in Germany, right? It would be called by the English press the Krautrock moment. Did that play into your consciousness? Bands like Kraftwerk forming and Amandul and uh, Can Faust. Well, you know all those guys. I just know, <laughs> of course, Kraftwerk and Amandul. I had a Kiss Forsey, who's uh, my drummer, used to be part of that group, yeah, it, it was like uh, suddenly uh, the music in Munich was starting to to become more relevant, and uh, I had several, not big, but some hits, like one was a kind of a bubblegum song, which is uh, Looky Looky. So I started to to produce in English and uh, sing in English, and that's slowly, slowly when Donna Summer came to life, came to life as a as a singer. And you had a big hit, a worldwide hit in 1972. This uh, band Chicory Tip, uh, who I've never heard from since, had a huge hit with one of your songs called "Son of My Father," which I recall having a Moog synthesizer solo. I had met Eberhard Schöner, who is a classical composer, who had one of the big Moog modular. I asked him if he could play some some stuff, like so I would I would hear what the synthesizer is doing, and he started to play me a long, long, low, low note, and uh, you know was slowly changing the tone, and uh, and uh, he he was mixing it through four speakers, and it was very interesting, but a little boring actually. <laughs> Then I asked the engineer 
if he could play me some of the other sounds which the synthesizer has and it, that was a revelation because I he gave me the the funny things the nice things the kind of uh, synthesizers the kind of uh, string sounds and I knew the sounds of the Moog quite well because I I was in love with that the, with the recording of Wendy Carlos I always thought this is an instrument which has a future actually well tell us about how you met Donna Summer Giorgio Donna was in Germany, and uh, uh, she was left stranded kind of in Germany because the musical which she was performing, I think it was Hair, uh, closed. So she got married to an Austrian guy, Helmut Sommer, and uh, she was doing little gigs like uh, overdubs and stuff like that. And uh, Pete Bellotti, my co-producer, we needed uh, some girls to sing backgrounds, and we wanted somebody who didn't have an accent. We had uh, Donna Summer, I think Roberta Kelly, and one more girl to do the backgrounds, and uh, we knew, I mean, you, you hear immediately that Donna had a great, great voice. So about uh, two, three weeks later, we had the idea of doing a song called The Hostage, and that was the first song we did with Donna. He was a hostage! Then finally, I had the idea of doing a sex song because I loved that French uh, song, Je t'aime. Uh, <laughs> oh, and by Serge I, Gainsbourg. So I told Donna, whenever you have a, a line, a, an idea for a chorus uh, lyric, uh, tell me, and uh, so we do it. So she, one day she came in and she sang, she said, okay, how about love to love you? Like maybe, oh, love to love you, oh, love to love you. And at that time I had a recording studio in Munich called uh, Musicland, which was uh, I rented it out to all the big guys, the, the English guys like Rolling Stones, uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, Queen. Uh, but that day, by coincidence, the, the studio was empty. So I went down. I lived in the same building. I went down into where the studio was. And I took a guitar and uh, I just played a little very rough demo. When she was singing, I composed uh, some parts of it. And uh, then I think we recorded it two, three days later with a nice little combo-like drum, bass, uh, guitar. Then my music editor, my music publisher, took uh, the rough idea to the Imidem, which is uh, a music uh, trade uh, event in Cannes every winter. Mm -hmm. I had incredible good reaction. And in fact, some of the radio started to play it 
And um, I think that was the that was the real beginning of the song and uh, of the career of Donna Summer and of my career. Well, she had a scandalous take on that song as well. I mean, there were some radio stations that wouldn't play the song because it was considered so explicit for the time. Well, actually, I was uh, shocked or very surprised that any radio station would play it. <laughs> But the, the famous one was the BBC in London, which didn't play it. And that was great because we got so much publicity out of it. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes bad, bad uh, things are turning into great things. And then somebody counted the moaning. The, I think the New York Times counted 76 moaning, which may be true. Did you encourage that, uh, Giorgio? Was that, was that something that Donna came up with, or was that your idea to sort of have these suggestive moans in the song? That was my twisted mind <laughs> who came up with that idea. In fact, at uh, the very beginning, she didn't really have any, just a little bit, but nothing like like the end product. And um, when we did a 17-minute version, I definitely wanted her to do mo more moaning, but it didn't really work uh, during the recordings because there was his, uh, her husband was there, Pete Bellotti was there, Jürgen Koppers, the engineer, and I think one or two more friends, so... I told everybody to leave the studio. I took all the lights down, and uh, she, did the, she did the recording. I forgot what happened. She says she claims that she was laying on the floor uh, with a microphone on top. I, I don't remember. I, I think she was sitting on a, on a chair, and uh, the lights were really down, and she was obviously comfortable. It was a fantastic method acting job, in other words, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. We'll continue talking with disco godfather Giorgio Moroder in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Amy Mann joins forces with Ted Leo.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we've been speaking with longtime producer and performer Giorgio Moroder. He's a name listeners might associate with film scores such as Scarface and Midnight Express, hits like Take My Breath Away, or more recently, a Grammy-winning collaboration with Daft Punk. But for many, it's all about iconic disco tracks like this one, I Feel Love, from the 1977 concept album I Remember Yesterday, recently featured in the Oscar-nominated American Hustle. Giorgio, uh, we were talking about your discovery of the Moog synthesizer. And listening to this song, I'm curious about something fundamental. You were working with these wonderful electronic instruments and these synthesized sounds that sounded like machines. They didn't pretend to imitate real orchestral instruments. That was the big fear at the time. Will we need real musicians and real orchestras anymore if these machines can do it? But no, the, the machines sounded mechanical. They were a new instrument. Were you going for that intentionally, pairing this organic gospel voice of Donna's with these artificial synthetic sounds? In other words, you know, man meeting machine. At the beginning, the idea, since we knew that Donna would be able to sing whatever we would propose, we had the idea of doing an album with different sounds. One, the sounds of uh, songs with the sounds of the 50s, the 60s, then songs of the 70s. And uh, I thought we have to have a sound which would reflect or which could become the sound of, uh, of the future. There was only one instrument, that was the, the, the Moog, uh, the big Moog modular, which I didn't use uh, in, I don't think I used it in any of Donna Summer's previous songs. The thing was, I recorded the tracks before I composed them which is unusual because normally I sit down on the piano, on the guitar, I play the guitar or the piano, and then I, at the same time I sing and I compose the song. In this case, I played the, the, the synthesizers and made the tracks. So when, when it came to take the tracks down with Donna, I composed it on the spot, and she started to sing with that high voice. Sometimes she, she, she would be a little childish, kind of. She would do those, those little voices like she did in Love to Love You. And, and it turned out it, it sounded beautiful because, like you said, this, this great voice, which was not a big voice, but very interesting voice, and soft and melodic voice had that big contrast with the, the, the metallic sound of, of the synthesizers. You know, a lot of people say I Feel Love was one of the first pieces of all electronic music to climb that high in the charts. Jim's hero, Brian Eno, famously said, I've heard the sound of the future, and he played the track for Bowie when they were recording in Berlin. Did you hear that story about Eno and Bowie uh, enjoying this track and, and thinking that it was uh, futuristic and influencing their own work? Yeah. When I did the soundtrack for, for Cat People, I worked with uh, David. Uh, he, he sang the, the song uh, Putting Out the Fire with Gasoline mm -hmm. for the movie.
So I, I think I heard the, the rumor that he said it, but uh, David definitely confirmed it. Yeah, that's uh, quite an honor. I mean, <laughs> these influential artists are saying you're the future of music. I mean, it must have been quite a quite a kick to hear that. That was my first inkling of, of maybe I did something interesting. Well, we are talking to Giorgio Moroder, the composer, the producer, the musical legend. All right, so Giorgio, you know, yes, you're getting uh, attention from people like that. People are, are, are excited about your, your music, your productions. The Donna Summer records are climbing the charts. Was there a period, though, where you were afraid that you were being typecast? Because it became this thing, we got to get that Moroder sound. Well, it became a problem, and especially that uh, it's relatively cheap uh, to to work with synthesizers, right? You don't need uh, musicians. Some one guy can do everything by by himself. So a lot of uh, TV shows, TV movies, where they didn't have the big budgets, uh, they started to use the synthesizers, like uh, I used to do them. And uh, I think it became a little over. Whelming, like oh god, not again! That sound. You were also having your solo career exploding at the same time that you were making all these hits with Donna Summer. I, you know, I remember talking to some of the Chicago house guys in the '80s, and and they were talking about that from here to eternity solo album that you put out in 1977. I think you actually had, I think that title song actually was like a number two hit in the United States. You also had an Academy Award for uh, the Midnight Express soundtrack from 78. Did you feel that was some of your best work, or or was that sort of... I mean, I can't, I can't imagine how busy you were at this time producing all these records, composing all this music. How did that sort of stack up in terms of your personal achievements? Well, that one was a, an absolutely great uh, project, because I just had uh, uh, I Feel Love uh, went to number one. Alan Parker, the, the director, thought that would be a great sound for one of the scenes in Midnight Express, he said, okay, Giorgio, just give me one track which reflects a little bit the sound of I Feel Love in the scene where the guy escapes the police, which worked really well for the movie. And then the rest, he said, just do whatever you want. And uh, <laughs> it was interesting because the request or, or the, the job I got to do this a soundtrack was so new to me and so surprising that I, you know, I wasn't really listening to soundtracks uh, as a musician. I was listening to soundtracks, uh, watching movies like a movie spectator. So I didn't have a clue 
what to do with with the with the music. I just thought, okay, here we need something more romantic, which <laughs> there weren't too many things romantic in the movie. Uh, here we need something more dramatic, suspenseful. So I just did it, and uh, and I remember I, Alan Parker came to Munich where I did the recording on a Sunday afternoon and he just uh, loved it uh, he just said is there a way to get a little oboe or a little clarinet or some uh, acoustic instrument and I said well look listen I play you a few oboes from the synthesizer and you you tell me if you like it I can put it in and he liked it so that was kind of the only comment and the rest he, he loved you also worked with Blondie who are huge fans for that Call Me track from American Gigolo in 1980 now, how did that come about? Um, I composed the song, and I had I had a relatively good demo, which uh, was done by, with my musicians in, in Los Angeles. And Paul Schrader and I, we were thinking, how, uh, and, and Jerry Brockheimer, of course, we were thinking, who could do it? And there was only one group, and that was Blondie. So I sent her to Deborah the recording, and just lately, I, I met her a few months ago in, in Mexico on a DJ tour, and she said, oh, by the way, do you remember you sent me the demo of uh, Call Me, and uh, you had a title, a rough title, something like Man Machine, Human Machine, <laughs> as a title, and it was really funny because uh, it reflected what the character in the movie does, but obviously... It didn't work for the song, so she came up with Call Me. In the legacy of that period of time, when house music, Detroit techno, a lot of these movements, musical movements, taking the innovations of disco, do you think that disco has ever gotten its due? Did you feel you were part of the movement? Did you feel you were standing outside of it? I'm curious about your feelings about that term disco, which for a few years, frankly, you know, was, was not considered cool. But now it appears to be, well, obviously everybody knows how great it was. What are your feelings about that movement now? Well, I, I, when disco was in, uh, at, the, at the beginning, everybody loved it. And I think everybody still loved it after. But, you know, like, it became a bad, uh, supposed to be a bad word, but people still would go to the discotheques and dance. And now it's uh, EDM is disco. It's like it's a better, cleaner version of disco, maybe a little less human than then, but it's... it's uh, I love I love all the sounds, uh, all the disco, the new disco, the new dance sounds like David Guetta and and Avicii and all those guys. If I had those sounds thirty years ago, I would have been the king of <laughs> of, of dance. Oh no! Now wait a minute, Giorgio. So you're talking to two rock critics. There is almost an assembly line of a lot of what 
you know, the kids call EDM, electronic dance music. And and while there are great people, and the entire time Greg and I are sitting here talking to you, we are flashing on, this is the guy who's on the Daft Punk record, and now he's talking to us, right? <laughs> All right, you know, there obviously, guys like that are just amazing. But there's also a lot of dreck. It's like you turn on the machine, you leave the room, you go outside and have a smoke, you come back, and 20 minutes later, you have a track. Well, it's it's true that that it's not, not only the way the synthesizers are used, but the way some of the guys compose, which is uh, kind of give me eight bars here, give me eight bars there. But uh, I think from from what I'm talking, I'm talking to some people, I think that changes. It's going to change a little bit. I, I, I started to work a little bit with uh, David Guetta and Avicii. Mm-hmm. Both guys said, okay, from now on, we want to have songs in the traditional, much more in, in the traditional uh, way. For example, uh, Avicii with the song "Wake Me Up," that's that doesn't have anything really to do with uh, EDM. It's uh, it's almost a country and western song, yeah. right? Yeah. So wake me up when it's all over. You have an intro, you have a verse, you have a pre-chorus, then you have a chorus, and then uh, intro again. I mean, a song more in the traditional way. So the same way that you would start on the acoustic guitar and sketch out a melody. I mean, I know that the guys in Daft Punk could sit down and play much of what's on Random Access Memories for us on an acoustic guitar. Right, and they, they did a really good job by by getting back uh, with with real drums, real strings, guitars, bass, uh, and I, I remember talking to the guys in Paris where I used to live uh, since uh, last year. Thomas was was uh, explaining to me in, in a ton of words <laughs> what's the next idea for the album, and, uh, and finally uh, I, I realized, yeah, yeah, he's going back to the roots of music. He was telling me, and we're going to use trumpets, we're going to use uh, guitars, which they, I think they never used uh, real bass. So they did a good job in, in getting, uh, getting that sound and uh, that feel back of the real recording, but then adding great synthesizer sound. Were you surprised when they asked you to do that little voiceover thing and uh, and it, it becomes like spoken word on top of one of their <laughs> tracks? I wanted to do an album with the sounds of the 50s, the sounds of the 60s, of the 70s, and then have a sound of the future. And I said, wait a second, I know the synthesizer. Why don't I use the synthesizer, which is the sound of the future? And I didn't have any idea what to do, but I knew I needed a click. So we put the click on the 24 track, which then was synced to the Moog modular. I knew that could be a sound of the future, but I didn't realize how much the impact would be. My name is Giovanni Giorgio, but everybody calls me Giorgio. They just told me, why don't you come to the studio in Paris 
and uh, they didn't give me any indication what they wanted to do. So I came there and uh, they said, okay, all we need you really is to tell to tell your story and make it as detailed as you can. So I spoke for almost three hours. Uh, it's, I mean, they, they have, they could, they could really blackmail me with, with, with the stuff I told them. I hope they're not going to use it. <laughs> That's awesome. Once you free your mind about a concept of uh, harmony and of music being correct, you can do whatever you want. So nobody told me what to do. And there was no preconception of what to do. And then they played it to me the first time, I think in March, and I was absolutely surprised. It was quite a moving song. I think they almost paid homage to uh, the I Remember Yesterday album, the way they kind of moved through these different eras of music in that song and in stitching together your monologue and and the, and it, you're you're offering a career summary here in a way Giorgio that one uh, couple of sentences near the end once you free your mind about a concept of harmony and music being correct you can do whatever you want so nobody told me what to do and there was no preconception of what to do it seems like that's the Giorgio Moroder career in a couple of sentences right in fact that happened in several times but especially on I feel love I had uh, nothing, zero in front of me except this huge, uh, whatever looked like a telephone switching board. And <laughs> I just said, okay, there's only one way to start. You have to take down a click so you can sync up all the synthesizers. And uh, I told uh, Tommy, give me a bass. So he gave, after like five minutes, he had a nice little bass and and I could program the bass in the four notes, dong, 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 mm. dong. I could program them, and then by triggering the click, it would play the speed which I wanted, dong, 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 dong. So I chose, uh, I forgot, 125 or something like that. Mm. And so I recorded dong, 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 dong. And every eight bars, I had to stop, tune the thing again, <laughs> yeah, restart. Yeah. <laughs> And then based on that one, uh, which which uh, it's kind of a little ma mathematical because I, I did not have the melody, so I, I started four bars here. Okay, now let's do eight bars here. Okay, then let's four, and then let's six, and then about um, again four because I didn't have the melody. And then I added all the sounds. We created, a, 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 it's called a white noise, and you cut it, and you get the sounds of a snare, of a hi-hat, of several percussions. And then, so there was no con the, the concept came up while I uh, while I was producing the tracks, and then the melody came later on anyway. Mm. Well, Giorgio, is there anything up your sleeve? Are you working on anything next? Oh, I'm working like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did a lot of remixes lately. I start uh, with a great group uh, or a good girl from New York called. Uh, class actress. I'm preparing some stuff for an album which I'm going to, to do soon, as soon as I have uh, I have the deal. So I'm yes, I'm back <laughs> I'm back working now. <laughs> We've been talking with producer and recording artist Giorgio Moroder here on Sound Opinions. Giorgio, it's been a real pleasure. Okay, thank you very much.
for a list of some of Giorgio's best tracks, visit soundopinions.org. And we want to hear from you. What are your memories of Giorgio Moroder's work in the disco era and beyond? And what do you think about the difference between disco and modern electronic dance music? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Amy Mann comes together with Ted Leo for the both. Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called Milwaukee from a new collaboration between Amy Mann and Ted Leo called The Both. Self-titled debut album out now. Amy Mann was in the band uh, till Tuesday in the 80s, of course, and had that big hit, Voices Carry, went solo in the 90s. Eight solo albums, most recently Charmer in 2012, founded her own record label, Super Ego. Many people would know her from that uh, soundtrack for Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. She was nominated for a Grammy and an Oscar award. And that really established her as one of the key indie artists and singer-songwriters of the last 15 years. Ted Leo, in many ways, a counterpart, moving in parallel movements throughout that two-decade period that Amy Mann was establishing her name. He came out of the punk and hardcore scene in New Jersey and New York in the late 80s, early 90s, and he's played in numerous bands. I think the best-known and longest-lasting one has been Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. They've had nine albums, most recently in 2010. They came out with The Brutalist Bricks. Now, he's also been a consistent presence as a solo performer, and it was as a solo act that he and Amy Mann started uh, collaborating together. She saw him perform and said, hey, we should do some stuff together. That resulted in a tour last year. They began working on new material, and now we have a collaborative album called The Both. Here's a track from it called Volunteers of America from The Both on Sound Opinions. The contract's a joke, but when you see smoke, you run toward the fire cause you must. They all called your name when the crash finally came, and left you to pick up the dust. I saw you walking in silence down to the bridge, but nothing went over the side. So I guess to someone with your heritage, withdraw like consent. 
That was Volunteers of America from the self-titled debut by the both Amy Mann and Ted Leo. Greg, we started with a little bit up top of the song Milwaukee from that album, and I think that is the worst song on the album. It it also was the kind of pre-advanced streaming single. Ted and Amy were touring together. They were walking around Milwaukee, where you went to college. Nothing against Milwaukee. It's a fine burg, right? And they see the Arthur Fonzarelli statue, and they begin (laughs) to muse about it. But then there's also this chorus about a nucleus splitting apart. I have no idea what they were talking about. It's a bad song. Critics make a fatal mistake when they review the album or the movie or the book that they wish an artist had made instead of the one in front of them. I'll tell you what I was hoping for from this collaboration. A man is a genius in terms of portraying beautifully in unforgettable songs heartbreak while leo has been a a non-creechy idealistic political voice of consciousness very much a modern inheritor of what the clash was i thought this would be a political album of great pop songs where the two were just on fire about things making them angry instead it's a pretty typical set it's half man and half leo what we like about both of them the voices merge smoothly they clearly inspire each other as writers to dig a little deeper for the better hook to go a little better for the great lyric it's just a collection of good songs now Mm -hmm. that's enough if i hadn't been expecting more and i love both of these artists right and i'll say it's not as good an album as charmer amy mann's 2012 disc was just a masterpiece this is simply a very good record and i love about half of it I expect better from these two. I will give it a try it. You sound so half-hearted about a collection of good songs, like that's a bad thing or something. I know exactly what both of these artists have done in the past, and that's what made me intrigued about the idea of them collaborating. Like, they really don't have a lot in common, or at least I didn't think they did. What they've done is created a third entity, and that, that's a beautiful thing. The idea that these two can collaborate and do something they really haven't done before in uniting their songwriting styles. And, well, and they have hey, created Amy, a union here. Amy has worked with her husband, Michael Penn, and it's not that different from this. Well, Ted Leo's more of a punk rocker than Michael Penn ever was. The point being that they function like a band on this record, which I was very surprised by. To me, the one common link is that they both put an emphasis on those good songs, as you say. 
I would say some even great songs on this record. Their love of melody, the well-constructed arrangement, you know, an emotional foundation built around those arrangements. Leo uh, impressed me as a guitar player on this record in showing me different styles and textures that he could bring to underline the emotions in many of these songs. And and that's a beautiful thing. I would say 90% of the songs on this record really work on a collaborative level to the point where I can't say, oh, that's an Amy song or that's a Ted song. It's a song by the both. It's a band effort, and that's a wonderful thing. It's a buy-it record for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to swim out to the desert island, pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox, and play a song we cannot live without. Jim, this week it's your turn. Greg, back in January, we did a show called The Bermuda Triangle. We were talking about bands for which we had very high hopes that then proceeded to disappear, (laughs) and we never heard from them again. I was thinking of my album of the year from 2009, Ida Maria, this young firebrand from Norway who made this fantastic record that was a cross between new wave pop melodies from the 80s and punk rock aggression. That album was called Fortress Round My Heart. came out in 2008 in Ida Maria Borley Sievertsen's native Norway. came over 2009 via Mercury Records, and she made a big splash at Lollapalooza that year. And then where the heck did she go? Nowhere. So I'm researching her for that Bermuda Triangle show. It turns out that she put out a second album in 2010 called Catla. It's a little slicker than the debut, a little less punk, a little more glam rock, 70s, which is not a bad thing, and a little, and I generally dislike this genre, a little show tune, a little like musical, but it's very funny stuff. It's like when Bjork was doing that. The song I'm going to play is typical. It's 10,000 Lovers, and it's her bragging about her accomplishments, but in the middle of it, Unlike the rest of her canon, she begins to rant in a sort of spoken word uh, speech in her native Norwegian. I have no idea what she's saying, but I so love the way she's saying it. It's like irresistible. Only the last two words make any sense. She's just ranting a million miles a minute, and then the last two words are, Frank Sinatra! (laughs) Whatever preceded that has to be great. This is Ida Maria, 10,000 Lovers, a Desert Island jukebox pick for Sound Opinions.
och släpp bomba på civila. Låter som du är dan och är du kul på överflöda. Kolla på kamrat med bakryggen du prata. Du blir smadrad natra. Alla kraftar som granata. Så detta här är från Abogrado Frank Sinatra. That was Ida Maria with 10,000 Lovers from her second album, Catla, on Sound Opinions. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, I know you've had Dancing Queen on repeat on your smartphone for the last week. Uh, yes. In celebration of ABBA's 40th anniversary, and that's what we're going to do next week. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. And Greg, one more news note on the way out, just in time for the Easter season. Did you hear there's going to be an all-star production of Jesus Christ Superstar featuring members of Destiny's Child in sync Incubus and get this Johnny Rotten <laughs> as Herod <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Mando. I'm in Berlin. I just heard your Almond Brothers special, and I really appreciate these special episodes. I've learned so much about different genres and, and bands that I had never gotten into before through you guys. And generally, whenever you guys have one of these, I always end up getting interested and feel like I'm going to get more into the band that you guys talked about. But man, couldn't get less interested in the Almond Brothers. I feel like the whole time I couldn't connect them by anything. It just felt like jamming the whole time through. I, I hope that other listeners got more out of it than I did. Sorry to be so negative. Love your show. Talk to you guys later. Hey guys, this is Josh in Oakland. I uh, just heard the review of the Black Lips album, and you guys were talking about bands that were influenced by the Beatles and then were kind of doing a garage rock thing uh, where they were trying to sound like the Beatles but came up with their own sound. And it kind of made me think of bands like Big Star, which are you know a great example of that. And then I just discovered the other day Jay and the Americans to be a little bit like that as well, kind of a mix of you know, Roy Orbison meets the Beatles meets Richie Valens' La Bamba.
very much. Hey guys, my name is Rui Barreto from Chicago. Wanted to say I was very impressed by your, your interview and the performance of Pelican, one of the better modern metal bands around today. However, I was surprised that they didn't talk about the influence of, I'm sure, what was probably their favorite band in this genre growing up, which is Tool, who absolutely used the same method of songwriting and song performances, both live and in the studio. And if Maynard Keene's vocals weren't on those songs, they would be exactly the type of long suites and symphonies, you could call them, that Pelican uses. that they didn't talk about that influence. Love your show, and I listen every week. Hi, this is Todd from Western Springs, Illinois. I just heard your interview with Pelican, and uh, I wanted to say thank you for that. As a family man with a 9-to-5, who is also a songwriter who's been having a go at it for 20 years or so, it was really, really nice to hear uh, a bunch of guys who've had success talking about the fact trying to balance the real life with their music life. Good show, great interview, and thanks for keeping the dream alive. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.